0: Hello, and welcome to the Encouragement Expert podcast. We're glad you're joining us today. Let's join Pastor Wes Stoffenbaugh with today's encouraging word titled, God Meant It for Good. Praise the Lord. It's a delight to be with you today. I love each one of you. God bless you. Uh, I have a message called, God Meant It for Good. Let's say a prayer. Father, we would love to have you come and bless us with thoughts from your word that would help us in our life. Uh, to get through whatever we need to and get through it victoriously for your glory. Would you help us with that? Use this message to that end, and may we be a blessing to multitudes of others as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, you probably know the story of Joseph from the book of Genesis. He was one of 12 sons of Jacob, whose uh, spiritual name was Israel. And uh, Joseph had spiritual dreams that God's destiny for his life was to be a ruler. And when he told his brothers, they hated him because uh, it sounded like he was gonna rule over them. Uh, His father also loved him more. Now that might not have been favoritism, it might have been the approval kind of love because there's approval is reserved for the obedience, whereas acceptance is for everyone. But at any rate, they hated him. Now one day they saw him coming to check on them as an errand that his father sent him on and they decided they'd kill him. But the oldest brother, Reuben, talked them out of, out of it and just uh, they had him thrown into a pit. Now, Reuben left on an errand and he thought he was going to come back later and rescue his little brother out of the pit. But while he was gone, some slave traders came by and they decided to sell Joseph as a slave. So Reuben was unable to rescue him and he was taken away into Egyptian slavery. Well, you probably know the story. Through a series of miracles, he ended up being the ruler he had dreamed about. And he rescued his brothers and their wives and children from a seven-year famine that would have killed them all. And then after his father Jacob's death, all these brothers approached him to ask for mercy, thinking that he might finally get revenge on them since their father had died. But Joseph said these memorable words, As for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good uh, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's the ESV and the NIV translates it, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The devil and people inspired by the devil and by their own fallen or carnal nature often mean evil against us. Plus, God allows the devil to arrange circumstances to overtake us and confront us, problems that seem to indicate we are forsaken by God, forgotten by him, and abandoned to unsolvable problems. And so, with our natural eyes, we see only the, you meant it, for evil. In other words, this situation is evil, bad, hopeless, it sure looks like defeat. And we go into despair, even anger at God, when we do not perceive through the senses of faith that God is up to something good that will end up saving not only us, but many others. Now, this message is intended to remind you that God is still causing all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's uh, the, basically Romans eight twenty-eight. Now, my first point is that we often waste time and emotional energy bemoaning our circumstances. When David was not yet king, but he had a small army of 600 men, he wanted to go to battle with the Philistines against King Saul and the forces of Israel. The Philistine king trusted David, uh, but the princes suspected that David would turn on them in battle and rescue Saul, and so they insisted that he be sent back to the town that the Philistine king had assigned to him, this little town called Ziklag. So David had to leave. I believe he would have rescued Saul, just like the princes uh, were suspicious of. But uh, he had to return to Ziklag. Now, when he and his men arrived, they found that their little town had been burned with fire, all their possessions stolen, and all their families kidnapped. And you can read the story in 1 Samuel chapter 30. So all 600 of David's strong men, and they were all warriors, wept, the Bible says, until they had no more strength to weep. And then some of them switched from grief and despair to anger and blame, and they blamed David for wanting to go to battle with the Philistines to save King Saul, who was always trying to kill David. So they thought something like this. If David wasn't so loyal to that insane king, we would not have been gone. None of this would have happened. It's David's fault. Let's stone him. Now, if they had stoned David, they would have certainly made their situation much worse and it would have turned into a permanent and terrible loss. But the Bible says that David strengthened himself in the Lord his God and he inquired of God and got the needed word of faith to pursue the enemy. And God, when God spoke to him, he told him, you'll succeed in the rescue. So he was loaded with spectacular supernatural faith because God revealed his will to him. Now, David's men pursued, and uh, 200 of David's men were too weak to cross the brook of Besor and had to remain uh, with the supplies to guard them while 400 went out to do battle. So those 400 men of David uh, took the Amalekite raiders by surprise and did hand-to-hand combat all night, and the Bible says only 400 of the enemy got away. Now, David only had 400 men. That means he attacked and his men attacked a much larger army. And they recovered everything of their own. No no family member, daughter, son, or wife was lost. They were all recovered. They got all their property back. Plus, these uh, Amalekite people had plundered many other people and so they had a whole lot of treasure. And uh, from all the plunder that David recovered, he sent gifts to the elders of Judah. Now, by that time, King Saul had been killed in the battle with the Philistines, and the elders of Judah were thinking about declaring David king, and then all of a sudden, their king is dead. David sends gifts and says, here's some, some uh, you know, plunder from the enemies of the Lord, and so they made him king in Hebron over the tribe of Judah. So you see what the devil meant to destroy David, to completely break him, to say, if God, you know, promised you the kingdom, but here's what God's letting happen to you. Your house is burned, your property's stolen, your family's gone, your men hate you. It's all over for you. Uh, But God actually used that to promote him into the kingdom. So the devil meant it for evil. just like in the story of Joseph, God meant it for good. Now, that's a great story, isn't it? But we often miss the point. And the point is, it's the nature of God to always take what the devil means for evil and make it work out for our good. So, the God who turned the burning of Ziklag into the promised kingdom inheritance for David is your God. He hasn't forgotten you. He's not sleeping. He hasn't changed into someone who is careless, uncaring, forgetful. His faithful nature, his loving nature, his all-knowing wisdom and his unlimited power are always the same yesterday, today, and forever. David's men were blessed to have David as a leader because they would not have sought God they would have accepted the problem as final, as the end, and they would have added to it by murdering David, and then they would have ended their lives in bitterness and defeat. Now, what about you? You don't have David as a leader, but you do have him as an example. Paul wrote, These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come, 1 Corinthians 10.11. 10.11. Right now, you may be headed for your Ziklag, so to speak, not knowing that a great trial is just ahead of you. Some of you have just arrived at your present Ziklag type of crisis, and you're surveying the circumstances, and you're realizing just how bad it really is. What will your response be? Will you forget that God means this for good? Say to yourself right now, the devil means this for evil, but God means it for good. Not only will he save me through this, but he'll save many others as a result. Now, that's the correct response to people who have learned from a biblical example. Remember, you don't have David to be your leader, but you have him as your example. God meant it for good when he allowed Joseph to be beat up by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold as a slave. It resulted in him being saved from a seven-year regional famine along with millions of other people god meant it for good when he allowed the amalekite raiders to attack and burn Ziklag and capture all the women and children it ended up by david being saved to the trial and the saving of many other lives all the captives were saved and then david led judah as king and later all of israel and uh, saved the whole nation from the surrounding enemy nations now my second point the cross is more than a symbol of our salvation from sin. Certainly the devil meant nothing but evil when it came to the betrayal of Jesus, the rigged and unjust trial, the mocking, the rejection, the whipping post, and finally the torturous death on a cross. However, God meant all of that for good and the saving of many lives. The Bible says because Jesus humbled himself in obedience even unto death on a cross, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every other name. Now, his death and resurrection have resulted in salvation for anyone in the world who turns to him and calls on his name. Salvation from what? Well, from an eternal burning fiery hell. I tell everybody, uh, don't try to don't say that you're just such a nice person. Somebody'll be the nicest person that ever goes to hell. And they will be there with all the most wicked of the earth. Uh, we have to. We're not good enough to earn our way to heaven. We have to accept the free gift of righteousness and eternal life that Jesus provides for us by receiving Him. Now, Paul wrote these words. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not not have crucified the Lord of glory because Jesus had no sin and he was completely, perfectly innocent. Uh, When the devil killed him, there was no legal right for him to be killed, and his blood, his sinless blood, then paid the price for our redemption. Now, if the devil had understood that he was defeating himself, that Jesus was going to crush him and take away all of his authority, uh, he wouldn't have crucified Jesus. The rulers of this age means the demonic spirits that control King Herod, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and those religious leaders, and later the whole crowd that screamed crucify him. These evil spirits hurled everything evil they could at Jesus, and yet he triumphed over them by the cross. The apostle Paul wrote, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses as having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us which was contrary to us and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross having disarmed principalities and powers he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it colossians chapter 2 1 through 15 a new king james version now what uh, the devil meant for evil god meant for good the cross is a symbol of our new covenant in christ the sign that reminds us of our redemption but it is also a constant reminder that god will always take what the devil means for evil and make it turn out for your good and for the saving of many others so when you see the cross say to yourself god meant it for good For the saving of many lives what the devil means for evil against me will be turned to my good and the good of many others think of your redemption when you see the sign of the cross but also remember that it is god's very nature and he never changes to take what the devil means for evil against you and turn it to your good my third point does god only do this for someone with a unique calling Do you think that God takes what the devil meant for evil and what evil people meant for evil and turned it to good and the saving of many lives just for people like Joseph or David or Jesus? What about you? Would God do that for you? Would he do it once in a great while or is it something he constantly does because it's his very nature? I believe that we'd see defeat turned into victory over and over if we do what David did, and instead of just wallowing in grief, despair, and anger, we'd think, I bet God has a way to make this work out for my good and the saving of many lives. For this reason, I wanna give you many Bible examples of God making what the devil meant for evil actually work for good to those who love God. Take the story of Job, now, Certainly, the devil meant everything evil against him, but God used all of that to show Job that even the most righteous person on earth must must not take his stand on his own righteousness, but on the righteousness provided by faith in God. And having learned that, then God restored Job's fortunes with twice as much as he had before the attack. Paul's imprisonment. The devil meant to do evil to the apostle Paul through false accusations, arrest, and imprisonment, but God meant it for good. In prison, Paul was protected from the constant assassination plots. He was virtually safe in prison. In prison, the only way he could bless the churches was to pray and to write letters or epistles. And so, Multiplied millions have been blessed and are being blessed by Paul's letters, There's uh, what we call the prison epistles, a major part of your Bible, all written when Paul was locked away and the devil thought he really had done something big, but God had meant it for good. Paul had no idea that his laboriously handwritten epistles, he'd dictate them, somebody else would write them, he might sign them, but nevertheless they were handwritten. And uh, he had no idea they'd be computerized and digitally sent all over the world instantly, that his writings would be translated into every known language of mankind. See, God was up to the saving of many lives. The devil meant it for evil, God meant it for good, and the saving of many lives. Now, Paul also wrote, Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, not only was the palace guard being saved, Paul ends his letter with this: All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. That's Philippians 4:22. We could say, "Wow, <laughs> the devil put Paul in prison in the maximum security where the, the Caesar's prisoners were kept." But that means uh, he was able to lead the prison guards. Uh, and because of the close association to Caesar, pretty soon people in Caesar's household was getting saved. You see over and over again how the devil means it for evil. God means it for good, for the saving of many lives. Now, you might say, wait, wait, wait. You're using examples of super saints. God may do that for them, but what about little old me? Well, here's what the Bible says. The righteous person faces many troubles But the Lord comes to the rescue each time. Psalms 34, 19, the New Living Translation. Each time for the righteous. Now, if you've accepted Jesus, he's your righteousness, you're the righteous, and the Bible says he'll come to your rescue each time. The Bible says he holds success in store for the upright. He's a shield to those whose walk is blameless. Proverbs 2, 7 in the NIV. Other translations uh, say... Uh, he, he holds sound wisdom in store for the upright. Well, sound wisdom would give you success. And in your present difficulty and problem, you certainly need sound wisdom that would give you success and help you outsmart the devil. Well, he does that for all who are upright. You don't have to be a super saint, but you have to walk upright. And, uh, and I believe you, as my partners, certainly qualify for that. Paul also wrote, Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we'll be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers in our sufferings, so also you are sharers in our comfort. Second uh, Corinthians 1, 3 through 7. Evil people and evil spirits mean or meant evil against Paul. But God gave him so much comfort through it all that he had more than enough comfort for himself. He had oodles of comfort left over to share with others. And Paul clearly says that God works this process for all believers, not just for apostles. My fourth point, I want to tell you about a prophetic vision of many cups. Years ago, I pastored in Omaha, Nebraska. I started a church in May 31st of 1981 and pastored there 15 years, and during one of those years, a man that I trust had a vision, and in the vision, the Lord was setting out many different cups for me to taste, as if they all had, you know, pop or Kool-Aid or lemonade or something, tea, something in them, and there was many, like 50 or more, and so I'd go along and I'd taste each one, and he asked the Lord what what this was about, and was told that God was letting me taste all these different answers so that when others were going through particular trials, I'd know which cup of comfort to direct them to. <laughs> now, what that vision actually mean was God's going to let Wes go through all kinds of trials one after another so that as I give him the victory and I give him the answer, he's going to have all this comfort. See, the devil meant it for evil, God meant it for good and for the saving of many lives. I can say with Joseph, the devil meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, the saving of many lives. I hope you'll memorize that Bible verse. I don't believe God does this just for apostles and spiritually wise people. I believe he does it for all his people. Note this, the average little disciple who responds rightly will grow strong and become a person who is worthy of being followed by others. David wasn't a king when he responded rightly at Ziklag. He was leading a small army, but he wasn't the king. But because he strengthened himself in God in the time of great crisis, and he sought the Lord instead of continuing to wallow in grief, fear, anger, and blame, it matured him. It made him a great leader. It promoted him to being king. So my point is, you might think, well, I'm, I'm just not a, not a great uh, biblical hero, so God probably won't make everything work out good for me. But if you'd adopt the attitude that God will do that, that'll help you respond with such spiritual maturity that you'll become one of those very special people that God can use to lead many to righteousness. My fifth point is, yeah, yeah, we already know this. And then I ask, really? For 40 years or more, I've been preaching that God turns problems into blessings and miracles. And I've taught all over America that God sends one blessing after another, like the Bible says, but many are in raw material form. They come down the conveyor belt of life as problems that need to be converted to blessings, and they end up being one blessing after another, but only if they're converted. I've taught that a miracle is made from a problem mixed with the grace of God, and I've had people all over America publicly say, I've got a perfectly good problem, and in that way, I've taught them how to respond in faith. So, I know all that, but I have to keep believing it and applying it. I can't just know it mentally. I have to keep believing it and practicing it. Now the last 11 years, since 2008, I've watched the church world change. And I've been traveling again constantly since June 1 of 2004. But in 2008, when there was that great uh, recession, almost all churches have stopped having Sunday night services. Most churches don't have their offices open on Friday anymore. It used to be a church office would be open all week, but now hardly any are ever open on Friday. And instead of office hours being 9 to 5, they're usually 9 to 3 p.m. or something like that, or maybe just two or three days a week. Pastors have become very hesitant to book more than a single service because they think our people won't come out to special services. And indeed, the pastors have tried having extended meetings and people did not come out only a few did, so that the pastors, for the most part, will not book special meetings. Now, there are still a few exceptions, but trying to book a revival seminar of five services, as I've done for many, many years, is becoming right next to impossible in this environment. It's not impossible, because nothing's impossible with God, and I still do them, but I'm saying in the in the natural, it's right next to impossible. So, I started... Uh, producing curriculums for churches to use. Instead of just asking for meetings and introducing myself as a speaker to come to their church, I'd call the church, leave a voice message for the pastor because you can almost never get one on the phone. And then I'd send an email saying that I was sending a book, usually uh, The Heart God Hears or 21 Ways to Forgive. Then I'd mail the book, wait three to four weeks, and follow up with more emails and phone calls. And then I'd offer to provide all the artwork for free in a PowerPoint, always several thousand dollars worth of art, if uh, the pastor wanted to personalize the message and preach it, him or herself. And then I'd discount the books forty to fifty percent. I'd give the churches the seventy-seven minute DVD of me teaching through the forgiveness message, and I'd give them the give them the professional ebook, teacher's guide, and a sample student workbook that cost about you know, $3,000 to produce those two things. In spite of sending them awesome testimonies, free books, and offering so much else for free, I can hardly sell a book by going through pastors. They're just too busy to read a book. They usually have something else lined up that they're already using. Now, this is been going on for years and I've managed to stay in the ministry and I do have fruitful meetings and I still sell a good number of books and CDs in those meetings and sometimes I get churches across the country to order books and I give them the DVD and all that I just talked about. But recently I realized that I just cannot keep this up. The circumstances have boxed me in and are demanding my surrender. In the natural, it looks something like zigzag after it was burned. I talked with Pastor Cliff Traub, who told me that out of something like 700 or more Assembly of God churches, I believe it's Southern California district, and there's thousands of ordained ministers in that big district, there are now only four evangelists. And all over the country, I've had people tell me that the traveling evangelist is a dinosaur. In other words, (laughs) going extinct. But I have real good publicity, I have lots to offer, and so I've kept on going. But I now have a choice to make. I could, I could say the circumstances are too hard, it's just too impossible, I'm sick of all this rejection. I'm gonna have to get a job selling something like used cars. What I've done instead is to sell my fifth wheel RV that I used as an office. It cost us $700 a month for the rent space, the electricity, and the internet. And I've been given a free office at Goshen Assembly of God, which is that very office I had in the 1970s when I served there as an associate pastor. Now, so we're saving a bunch of $700 a month. I'm going to be making three-minute encouragement expert programs that will air one a week on 10 different social media platforms. I realized that I must market my books and curriculums directly to Christians of all different denominations over the internet rather than going through pastors and the myriad of gatekeepers that surround them and doing that in only one denomination. You've heard the term creative destruction. Well, new things are created that destroy old ways of doing things. So they destroy some things, but they're creative as well. Creative destruction and that means if we don't adapt, we put ourselves out of business. The Bible says of Jesus, what he opens, no one can shut, and when he shuts, no one can open, Revelations 3, 7. We think of God opening doors for those he loves and shutting doors for those he disapproves of. However, God has made me realize that he also shuts doors for those he loves because he doesn't want them going through the same old doors. He's opening bigger, better doors, so he has to shut some doors to show his love. You see, if God kept opening doors for revival seminars as he has in the past and kept giving me sales of books through pastors, I'd never branch out into social media. I wouldn't cross the denominational lines and speak to the entire body of Christ. But soon there's going to be a digital newsletter, a podcast, and many new and innovative ways to send things to you that you can then forward and send to others, not by just handing them a physical CD or the printed notes like we've done in the past, but you'll be able to forward them over the internet through all the different webs of social media. My sixth point, God has not forgotten you. For the last month, I have been getting up at uh, basically the last two months, 5 a.m. I get up, I spend about three hours with the Lord, reading the Bible slowly and then praying. And one morning I was meditating on this verse from Hebrews 12.1, the Passion Translation, which is a fun translation. As for us, we have all of these great witnesses who encircle us like clouds. So we must let go of every wound that has pierced us and the sin we so easily fall into Then we'll be able to run life's marathon race with passion and determination for the path has been already marked out for us. The footnote, and he has oodles of footnotes in the Passion Translation, says that uh, we are to get rid of every arrow tip in us. This means if we've been emotionally wounded, the arrow tips could still remain in us and Like if you were literally shot with the the weight of a metal arrowhead and it was in you, after a while it'd become a heavy weight. (laughs) Well, those emotional ones weigh us down, and so the Bible says, uh, "Let go of every wound that has pierced us." Well, we can follow. We can allow our Father to pull out the arrows and heal us up. But notice this, the way for us to run this long race has been marked out for us, all the way to the end. Well, one day I was, you know, I was really feeling low. Uh, I had spent a, a couple days phoning, not able to sell a single book, not able to talk to a pastor, no meetings lined up. And uh, I asked God that morning if he'd lost his marker, <laughs> not his marbles. <laughs> I just said, God, It says here that you've uh, marked out the race for me. Have you lost your marker? Or or, or, or What good does it do if you mark it out and I can't see where you've marked it? And I was just, uh, you know, sometimes you just got to tell God how you feel and be really honest with him. But after I kind of grumbled and griped and vented, the comfort of that verse started to sink in and I started to think, you know, God... He has marked out my race for me. He hasn't stopped marking it out. It's marked out to the very end. I'm 69, but he didn't throw the marker away when I got to 69. God has a way. God has a plan. And I started to let the word comfort me and go deep into me. When I was in Vermont last September, we had a special day where leaders prayed over each other. And for 19 minutes, I was given prophetic words by what I considered to be reliable spiritual people. And uh, they told me that God was going to expand me so much, it would be like going from a pop can to becoming a swimming pool. Well, I've been praying God fulfill that. And for that to happen, there has to be many new ways of doing ministries. So some of you have shared uh, physical printed sermons and audio CDs from me, but soon you'll be able to get them digitally. Then you can attach them to emails, share them on Facebook, and use them in many different social media tools, and together, together, we'll do more for God than ever before. The same God that has my way marked out has your way marked out. To all of us, he says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the most high and call upon me in the day of trouble and i will deliver you and you shall glorify me that last that's psalms 50:14 through 15 my phone number is 541-729-5015 now psalms 50:15 says call upon me in the day of trouble i will deliver you and you shall glorify me i I just finally realized that's my phone number. God's got my number. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I'll deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Then in Isaiah 49, 15 through 16, God says, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands your walls are ever before me. My seventh point is, so bring me the ephod. Now I'll have to explain what that means. Let's go back to the story of David and the burning of Ziklag in 1 Samuel 30. After giving in to grief and despair, David suddenly realized that he could seek God. But he did something special to seek God. He said to the priest, Abiathar, who accompanied him, who was one of his bands, bring me the ephod. Now, I've always wondered about that. <clears throat> An ephod was a priestly robe that th- worn by the priests. And only the priests were supposed to wear it. But David didn't tell Abiathar, go get your ephod, put it on, and inquire of God for me. Why did he say, bring me the ephod? Well, I'm reading between the lines there, but apparently Abiathar, his priest, was so busy wailing and mourning and being faithless with all the other men that David knew it wasn't going to do any good for him to put the ephod on. He was in too much unbelief, so David said, bring it to me. I'll put it on. I'll inquire of God. You're just going to wheel and weep and cry and and act like everything's impossible. You, you can't seek God, get any answer for me. Give, bring it to me. I'll put it on. I'm going to seek God. I think he's got an answer for me. And God did answer him and spoke to him and said, pursue them. Because David said, shall I pursue this company? He said, pursue them. You'll succeed in the rescue. And so David had the revelation of God's will, which gave him spectacular supernatural faith. And of course, he ended up rescuing everybody. Victory was assured before they even set out. However, they had to act it out. They had to chase the enemy, and they came upon him in the evening and then fought all night long in hand-to-hand combat. Let me ask you this. Is everybody around you negative? Are they all wailing and grumpy and depressed? Does everybody think it's the end? You might as well say something like this. Well, if you can't put on your priestly garment to seek the Lord, then bring it to me. I'll put it on. I'm going to seek God. In the new covenant, we don't need a priest to inquire for us. Rather, the Bible says we're made to be a whole kingdom of priests who offer spiritual sacrifices. But even though we're spiritual priests, we have to wear a spiritual robe, right? And I believe we have to put that on when it comes to seeking God. I mentioned for the last couple months I've been getting up at around 5 a.m., making some coffee and then sitting and reading the Passion Translation, comparing it with the ESV, pondering God's Word in my heart and then praying. And then in addition, I pray in the Spirit or pray in tongues uh, in the nighttime when I wake up or in the early morning before I get up and make the coffee. I'm now seeking God more than any other time in my entire life. It's been a most discouraging time, but I'm turning it into a time of drawing close to God and a new assurance of victory has come into my heart. Paul wrote this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Colossians 3.12. Well, that sounds like the priestly ephod that we should put on like David. During this time of discouragement, I ordered the Passion Translation, the New Testament Psalms and Proverbs, and then I found that some of the newer versions of it also had the Song of Solomon, so I ordered it again with the Song of Solomon in it, and then the book of Isaiah is separate, so I ordered that. And so I'm saying, bring me the word of God. I'm gonna clothe myself in the word of God. I'm gonna seek God in his word. So if your situation is something like David experienced with the shock and trauma of a burned home, a kidnapped family, stolen property with all your friends wanting to stone you, (laughs) it's probably not that bad, but if it's bad, you have a choice to make. You can grieve yourself to death or you can try to kill somebody else with your angry words as if you're stoning them or you can seek God until you get a new assurance of victory from him. My eighth and final point is pursue your miracle with your renewed faith. God told David, pursue them. You'll surely overtake them and succeed in the rescue. Paul said to pull out the weighty arrowheads of emotional wounds, throw off the sin that so easily entangles and run the race marked out for us with perseverance. You see, David had to get up and fight the fight of faith. They had marched all night to get back to Ziglag. And then they pursued the enemy all day, caught them at night, and then fought all night. So they were up 48 straight hours, much of it in hand-to-hand combat or marching. They were doing all that in faith, but it certainly involved action and 100% uh, effort. Now, meanwhile, 200 of David's men were too weak to cross the brook of Bissor, And I looked up Bissor long ago to see its meaning. I'd kind of forgotten. I looked it up again. It just means cheerful, the brook of cheerfulness. Now, notice the miracle of recovering everything was on the other side of cheerfulness, and some men could not cross over into cheerfulness. They just, uh, they had to have somebody else go get their victory for them while they waited. Their strength had been lost through non-stop negative emotions of grief, despair, unbelief, anger, and hopelessness. And all of that was unnecessary because what the devil meant for evil, God meant for good. Now, what if we really locked that in? And that's what this message is about. Lock it in. It might be the devil meant the most terrible thing. God means it for good and for the saving not only of you but many other people. Say to yourself, I've got to quit this moaning and groaning. I must quit just being angry at others and being angry at God. I'm gonna draw close to God, and if no one will help me do that, then bring the ephod to me. I'll seek God earnestly myself. And then you have to decide, you know what, I'm gonna leave a little emotional strength in me so I can cross over the brook of cheerfulness. Have you ever known that there was gonna be dessert so you purposely didn't get too full, you left a little room for dessert? Well, when you're going through all these negative emotions, leave a little room for cheerfulness. Your miracle's always on the other side of the brook of Besor. You're gonna have to cross over into cheerfulness. And then you'll find the victory. Now, after you seek God, you'll have a new assurance that he has marked out the rest of the race for you and he hasn't thrown away his marker. When you realize that, cross over that brook into cheerfulness and pursue your miracle. Now go after it, make an all out effort look again at the cross. Satan meant it for evil. God meant it for good. It's the sign of our covenant. It's our very identity. And we triumph as we know and believe that God makes all things work together for good to those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose. I love you. God bless you. If you would like to partner with us at Encouragement Expert, please email us at pastorbacker at gmail.com. Or you can write P.O. Box 485, Crestwell, Oregon 97426.